This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hi there, this is May from Spice Bags, introducing a special standalone episode with our favorite headstuffer, Connor Reed, and his podcast, Words to That Effect, an episode you may find slightly different than our usual Spice Bags fare. Now, Dee Blanc and myself are not just food geeks, but we are book geeks, and Connor's wonderful book podcast, Words to That Effect, is passionately dedicated to the 19th and 20th century literary deep dives that we adore. The chance to talk with Connor about novels and food was something that sent all of our pages a flutter. Plus, you should know that our literary tastes are all more steak tartare than strawberry shortcake. Thanks. I hope you enjoy. How does this show start? Uh, <laughs> Why don't you start off by explaining how May's been hounding you to yes. be part of your podcast um, to, so she can talk about Shirley Jackson. I mean, that's a good, that's a good point. I've been stalking you. So welcome to Spice Bags and Words to That Effect together at last. We're here to talk about food and books and books in food and all sorts of other combinations. So for listeners of Spice Bags, I'm Connor Reed and I have a podcast called Words to That Effect. And for listeners of Words to That Effect, you guys are? We are D, May and Blanca. And we have a podcast called Spice Bags, which is where we chat about international cuisine from an Irish perspective. Yeah. So I think like my podcast is all about popular culture and food is a huge part of that. And your podcast, it talks about all sorts of different angles and aspects to food and literature's got to be in there. So it's a good mix. So will we start with a quote from Fictitious Dishes? An Album of Literature's Most Memorable Meals by the writer Dina Freed. So she says, reading and eating are natural companions and they've got a lot in common. Reading is consumption. Eating is consumption. Both are comforting, nourishing, restorative, relaxing and mostly enjoyable. They can energise you or put you to sleep. Heavy books and heavy meals both require a period of intense digestion. Just as reading great novels can transport you to another time and place, Meals, good and bad ones alike, can conjure scenes very far away from your kitchen table. Some of my favourite meals convey stories of origin and tradition. As a voracious reader, I devour my favourite books. It's great. I love that quote. Yeah. I agree, you know, and I think often when I'm thinking about a food, I think what novel can I associate with that, right? And that that's like a big thing, right? It's like, if you're having a clam chowder, it's like, okay, so when was the last time I read a novel, you know, a novel in which there was clam chowder? And then that also takes you back to that personal space where you were like, oh, I was reading, you know, gosh, I'm trying to remember a novel about clam chowder. This is a bad thing. <laughs> I'm like, ah, like I was like, okay, fried, fried catfish, like in Huckleberry Finn. When was the first time that I read, you know, fried catfish and huckleberry finn and like how what how old was i like what were you know what was going on around me so it's it's this like big thing that you're you just basically are unpacking a lot when you put books and food together yeah i always Mm. think that like one of my earliest memories of food in books was alice in wonderland and you know the kind of 
temptation with the eat me and drink me and you know those kind of I just always remember that being really overwhelmed by by how much it I I was able to picture it at a young age and then also as I've gotten older and and love reading I think I now attribute books as you were saying maybe not to I do remember scenes written about in books about food but more so I think about where I was when I was reading a book or what meal I was eating or what meal I was cooking or, you know, like I associate a lot of books with different meals. I don't know if people do that. Yeah, I think that there's definitely that idea that both reading and eating are very much things that put you in a place immediately. You know, that sort of the way that like smell can do that so powerfully and things like that and and both good and bad you know there's that really strong association of where you were when you read a book what sort of mental place you're in how you felt how it made you feel both the book itself and the world around you and yeah that that is there with food a lot as well I do Um, actually want to say something and I and I have very much these memories of Alice um in Wonderland but um but Lewis Carroll didn't like eating like he was kind of disgusted by the whole thing. Oh. He would just eat a couple of dry biscuits, but he knew to pander to his child audience that he had to put food in because he realized that children would only be seduced by what he would present to them if he had food. Yeah, I didn't know children that. on their pesky insistence on eating food. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting that he could write about food in that way, even though he didn't take pleasure from it himself. I mean, that's really interesting. I sometimes, you know, even think about that with food writers, you know, how people, you know, are critics, you know, who have maybe don't like how they have to be objective. And if they don't like certain ingredients, they still have to comment on them objectively and eat them, even though they don't like them. You know, I kind of find that quite Mm -hmm. interesting how you can write about food in such a nice way, but not actually have a taste for it yeah because you kind of always assume or at least i off would always assume that a writer writing really passionately about food or like who has a character who really likes food is almost certainly a writer who really likes food in the way that you wouldn't yeah. assume that for other things necessarily you know that that the main character's attributes are you know reflected in the in the person writing it but as with lewis carroll maybe that's not the case at all maybe it's just uh well i was yeah i was gonna say there's a lot of great writers who write about food with like maybe eating disorders who struggle with their weight yeah. and so this deprivation mm. thing and so this this these food like these these feasts that you create in your head and they are you know in many ways so much more palpable and decadent than anything you can taste like what what would you want to be eating if you were not depriving yourself right now and that i feel like is like very much part of the you know, writers who can convey food exquisitely. It's a little dark, but... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny how Dee was saying her first memory. My first memory is my dad reading, like, this um, 16th century um, book, The Swindler. And the scene, there's a scene, um, I'll read you a little passage later, where the boy goes to a dorm and there's no food. There's in the dormitory in the university. And it's all about poverty and class. And and I don't know, lately I've been thinking a lot of the food writing that I like has to do with 
politics with um and and it's funny like we found like all these links between um these writers and then modern writers after the spanish civil war wanting to write about food as a protest or trying to avoid censure but it just i, I guess doing this podcast with you connor's made me realize my interest in food is less about this glossy description and more about what it says about class and i i i i realized that i am interested in that narrative the political angle of food and how it can be weaponized to say you're a slut you're um a terrorist you're lazy i don't know and it's and it's fascinating how how you can how many how many different writers can use food in different um ways that is But really yeah. interesting yeah but also But yeah. frequently with humor like brutal humor. oh yeah brutal humor but humor <laughs> <laughs> and it's also like it's a good just from a, like a technical point of view using food in a novel is a good shorthand for you know getting your characters attitudes and opinions and ideas and things like that across to the reader without having to go into too much detail because we you know we judge people yeah. by what they eat and like you say and how they eat it and when they eat it and, and all of these other things around food are such sort of central aspects to everybody's life. So so using it is a really handy and useful way for an author to just sort of slip in something that you can you can tell the the reader without really having to tell them too much in that sort of way. There's yeah, no there's mm. a shorthand, but then occasionally and I'm going to play devil's advocate, but then sometimes right you go the really great writers like You know, I was thinking like Marquez. I love Marquez. He doesn't like there are these huge books by Marquez and you're completely swept up in Marquez and he really does not talk about food. And, and you go, okay, like maybe sometimes great writers don't need to resort to food in order to sweep mm. you away. Like, and so it's, I don't know, it's, it's this, it's a push and pull. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, because you don't have to. Some people just aren't interested in food as well. You know, it yeah. just doesn't have yeah. to be What? a part of every novel or at all. You know, I mean, that's a hard sell to you guys. But, <laughs> um, you know, some people are just like, I just don't care about food. I'm no interested in it. I don't want to put it in my novels. Not something I particularly, you know, particularly care about. But then I, Yeah, and then I think I suppose it's like, I suppose one of the genres I'm going to touch on is, you know, horror and um Um, I suppose we're going to talk about sci-fi as well and, and does food, you know, or its representation in, in that literature. And I think, you know, people don't often so think or associate food with horror, but I mean, horror in itself is so, so descriptive and so visceral. And so, you know, that it often even use, uses food descriptors without talking about food, you know, the way someone is killed or murdered or the, the description of a yeah of, of of even i don't know a feeling can be done in in a kind of a, in those ways in the same descriptors that you would use to describe food i don't know mm. whether you guys have ever read it but brett easton ellis's american psycho yes oh has, my dear god has oh. a scene and let's just say eggplant parmesan and that scene You don't want to eat the eggplant parmesan for a while after that scene. You're like, okay, those two things together. That's one of my favorite dishes. It's off the table. <laughs> that is the scary. That is to this day the scariest book I have ever read. It's It so, is. Yeah. It's I just so don't like horror or murder, so I'm like, okay. It is. It is. Yeah, very disturbing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Aperitivo. What I wanted to mention, May and I had a discussion about this. Um, as you know, because you're Westerners, May isn't, um, that the novel was invented by Cervantes and the Quixote was the first novel. In the Western world, May. <laughs> May's already getting like, Ugh. But um, you have to remember at this point in time, Spain was a huge empire. They had land, you know, they, they owned Holland, parts of Italy. They had a lot of money, obviously, that we brought from the Americas that we stole. So um, there were a lot of probably rich people, noblemen who could write books, who had, you know, the the, the income to just dedicate. Like the, most of these writers were people who had money. But one of my favorite novels is called El Buscón Don Pablos. And like I said, this is a book that you read in Spain in school. It's, it's a very famous book, but it's a very loved book because the satire of the society is it's it's just brutal and picaresque novels. So there's two novels, Lazarillo de Tormes, which is a little boy and it's an anonymous novel. And then there's the swindler and they both, they're about people who are poor, who are trying to get by to the next um, step in society, but they're always pushed back down. And there's so many scenes about food because obviously they were hungry and they needed to eat. So there's a scene, um, Lazarillo works for a man who's blind. He's a helper. So his mom basically gives him up to work for somebody who's blind and they never see each other again. And he's always stealing food from the from the blind man. He's like sticking his straw in his wine or <laughs> stealing things, but he always gets caught. And there's a scene where he gets like hit with this wine uh, cup and he breaks the the man, the blind man breaks all his teeth. And it was just... You know, you read that and you're like, oh. So anyway, and then in The Swindler, it's uh, it's a man who, you know, comes from a low-class background. The writer Quevedo was obviously in the nobility, and he was ambivalent, I think, about people climbing uh, the social ladder. But he goes to this um, dormitory, and the food they serve is absolutely ridiculous. So I'll read you a little bit about it. Um, then came an infinite meal by which I mean it had no beginning and no end. They brought little wooden bowls of a soup so clear that if Narcissus had drunk it, he would have fallen in quicker than into the pool. With a pain in my chest, I saw the lean fingers paddling after one lone orphan chickpea at the bottom of the bowl. After each sip, Dr. Goat says... Yes, yes, they can say what they like, but there's nothing like soup. All the rest is luxury and greed. So the whole novel, all the food scenes are described like that. And I just found it as a little girl just so shocking that, you know, people would be fighting over a chickpea or they would, the food they would eat would be stuck in their nails because there was no food. So um, th this is just a... I would say for anybody interested in Spanish culture and food, and it's definitely a classic to read. And it's amazing how to this day, it's such an easy novel to read. That was what I was actually saying to Blanca this morning because I was reading it and I said, hold on, hold on, like my memory of Cervantes is that like he was much harder. Like, did I have like, I was like, can because, I just jump yeah. into Don Quixote? And I was like, I was like, this is, these are so easy, easy. and so accessible yeah. and so funny. But I would say that the swindler maybe has so many puns 
um, that don't translate so well, but it is like, it's just a riot. It's a riot. Um, It's a real riot. And I mean, and, but then, yeah. And like, there's cannibalism if we want to, like, there was like potential cannibalism if we want to talk Mm. about that. I was like, I was like, Blanca, what is this pie that I keep talking about? Like, they like, um, anyway, but I won't because, um, the, the main character from the swindler is, um, the son of an executioner and, um, and a witch who may be Jewish. Who maybe no, who may be Moorish. Maybe so in Moorish, Spain okay. at this time, we had the Inquisition. So um, you had to pretend you were a Christian because yeah. if not, you could end up in front of a, an Inquisition tribunal. So I think, the, I mean, I would say this is a novel that I would definitely recommend that people read if they're, if they're interested in in Spain in general, because even though it sounds like, why am I going to read a novel from whatever the 16th century, it's still the critique of the society. You could write a novel like this right now and criticize Irish society or any society, American society. And he's just a wonderful writer. He only wrote one novel. He was a poet. But this novel has obviously stood the test of time and has been very influential so and was this this was the one you said your your dad read to you as a kid or yeah yes. so like it's, it's it is a, a novel that's sort of suitable for all ages type thing um or yeah. is it just that you had a, <laughs> he's like yeah, no <laughs> cannibalism execution yeah the normal kids themes blanca like so so you know, so there's this whole thing where you know the the father is executed by the uncle. He, he like both of them are executioners, and the father says the uncle. Sorry, the uncle says I hanged him, and he did, he hung very well. And then I quartered him, and I put him like at the crossroads. And there's this whole thing that they talk about. Hold on, the pies. Oh, that children's pies. story. The oh, yeah. pies, right? <laughs> no, no. I mean, this is something that my mother would have probably had me. I think so my dad like read. Selected parts from the book. Let's just say that. (laughs) Starter. To your favorite author. To your favorite author. He's actually not my favorite author at all. I'm far from it. (laughs) Um, He's my comfort food of an author. Um, Yeah. He's he's my my lasagna, shepherd's pie sort of an an author. Oh, cool. You know. I'm so glad that you said that because I was like, this is a cozy nail mystery, right? Like I. Yeah, I I don't read so. Um, I guess we jumped straight into this, but this is uh, this is the Montalbano <laughs> series by Andrea Camilleri. I pretty much just read them when I'm on holidays. I kind of I kind of keep them for my holidays because um, there's a, there's a limited amount of them. And Camilleri died, I think, in two years ago. So now there's a very limited number. I think there's twenty, just under three, twenty six or seven novels or something like that. Um, I think I've read about ten or twelve of them. Um, they're so easy to read, and obviously they're just like page turners and they're they're very comforting in that sort of much like you know plenty of detective novels are but they're also funny and I think they're very clever at times they're uh, also they, they just sweep you up in this world of, of Sicily um, and I've never been to Sicily but I have been to many many parts of Italy and I love Italy um, and so I, I tend to just read them on holidays often on holidays in Italy and they're great but they're also just as soon as you said food in novels, I was just like Montalbano. You know, there, there are certain <laughs> there are certain um, authors that are just you know really really are who really kind of foreground food. But I think food works in a lot of different ways in in the Montalbano novels. Um, so for for anybody who hasn't read them, they're 
a series of novels. They take place in a fictional town of Vigata in Sicily, which isn't a, a real town, but there's kind of a town that's very like it there. It's all it's all kind of very loosely based on on different parts of, of Sicily. Um, and I think in the British versions, he's Inspector Montalbano or he's Detective Montalbano. Um, in, in American versions, it's different translations, but um, he's a detective in a small Sicilian town, but he's trying to kind of navigate the ever-present background of the mafia. So they're always there, but they're not mafia novels. There's some where the mafia come in more, but they're always just kind of there in the background um, as opposed to them being very specifically. Because when you think crime novels from Sicily, the mafia tends to be front and centre, but they're very much not. It's generally Montalbano, who's kind of, he's not afraid to sort of go around the law if it sort of means that his own sort of personal sense of right and wrong and morality is, is uh, what would you say, that he's, he's sort of, he's satisfied himself. But all of this is punctuated with food. So he constantly eats, but pretty much never cooks himself. So he has a housekeeper, Adelina, and she is kind of a mother figure who just cooks, comes to his house, mostly seems to just clean, cook some amazing meal and leave. <laughs> and then he comes home and just opens the fridge and is like, oh, what has Adelina left me? Um, and then if he doesn't eat at home there, generally out on his terrace overlooking the sea, he eats in uh, a local restaurant. So um, in the in the trattoria and he goes there and, you know, orders whatever takes his fancy, whatever is presented in front of him. Invariably fish, loads of fish. And yeah, so he uses those sort of moments where he's eating to think about the cases, to think about what's going on in the world. But they generally tend to sort of, what he's eating tends to link with the crime sometimes in some sort of way. It helps him digest over the evidence. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) He kind of needs to... I'll I'll read a, a short sort of bit here from... So this is from... One of the more recent ones, actually, um, The Other End of the Line, which is 2016. So um, translated to 2019. Um, so in this one here, he is, he's gone to Enzo's Trattoria and he's greeted by Enzo, who says, Inspector, would you like some migrant soup? Uh, Enzo, please, no, don't talk to me about migrants. What have you got that's good, really good? If you don't want fish as a first course, I've got a delicious canichola. And what's this canichola? Oh, they're little trapanese macaroni and cabbage with potatoes. My wife invented the dish. Well, I do always trust your wife's cooking. The canichola was breathtaking. He made up for his betrayal of the fish realm by ordering a dish of mullet cooked in salt for a second course. This too was excellent. When leaving the trattoria, he felt a little weighed down, thus necessitating a stroll along the jetty, despite what ghosts this might awaken. Walking along at a slow pace, one lazy step at a time, he reached the lighthouse. Sitting down beneath it, he lit a cigarette, and looking around, he realised how much the harbour had changed. But the quay and the arm of the jetty he was on had been divided into so many sections marked by barriers. Seen from a distance, they looked like some kind of labyrinth. He quite logically thought that, in any case, such temporary barriers were better than walls or barbed wire as so many other European countries were contemplating. And what do you think of the European Union? He asked a crab that was looking on from a rock beside the one he was sitting on. The crab did not reply. 
So <laughs> you love that. <laughs> it sort of starts with migrant soup. And this book is all about uh, migrants landing in Sicily. And, you know, the so it's all about migration and crime and various things. So it starts with migrant soup, which I don't actually know what that is, but obviously some type of soup. And this is often the case with the food in, in the book and also kind of with the translations too. But, you know, so it starts with migrant soup. It moves into the food, detailed descriptions of the food. He always goes for a walk to sort of, again, you know, digest the food and the crimes and so on. And then he talks to a crab about the European Union and, and you know, <laughs> and migration. These kind of Classic detective is, kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. moves. <laughs> very sort of typical passage or whatever of, of these kind of ones. The other thing he does is he that he usually eats alone. So he eats alone in his house or he eats alone in a restaurant. And if somebody joins him, he 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 hates talking while eating. So he doesn't like anyone to talk to him. I mean, but it's interesting. So with for me with Montalbano and his relationship with women, right? It's Livia. He goes, this is why I love Livia is because she is a woman who keeps her mouth shut during <laughs> meals, right? And you go like, okay. And then, you know, and then his housekeeper, right, who has that motherly, but it's a whole, this idea that she's pretty much absent. Mm. So, you know, like, and he loves that, right? So she's mothering him, but he never has to see her. Yeah. So there's all of, you know, there's these sort of mystical notes and then there's things in the refrigerator. And that's how he likes his women. He likes them with but their mouths shut. It's, it's, fa- it's so great. Like he's kind of a jerk. Yeah, that <laughs> he's Italian because Italians <laughs> and Spanish, like people talk so much at dinner and lunch. So it seems a little bit, I wonder almost, what the author is trying to say. Yeah, it almost reminds me more of like you could be describing Sherlock Holmes or something, you yeah. know, like I feel like he always ate alone or Poirot as well. I don't know. Maybe it's a detective thing that they just like yeah. to, you know, mull over the case while they eat alone. They don't like anyone to disturb them because they're actually run as they're eating and literally digesting. They're also going over the case and everything. It's that clarity of mind. And they just I can't do think have Poirot anyone actually enjoyed having company when he ate. But Did I think he? that's because, yeah, I was like a real like Agatha Christie fan. He likes to introduce his coarse English friends to a civilized way of dining. <laughs> so right. they sit and they eat and he orders it perfectly. And then he drinks something like really disgustingly sweet while like an inspector like will nurse a beer. And then they talk about the case. But, but he's like, obs- he was obsessed about... The kind of symmetry of the table and yeah. the cutlery and all that kind yeah. of things, wasn't he? Yeah. So yes, exactly. Just the, the a meal well done. Yes. Okay. Can I say, Connor? Uh, I think you're going to have to come to Madrid with me soon. But one very trendy thing that happens in Madrid these days is they have Montalbano dinners, oh. and I'm looking at one right now that is dedicated to um, Adelina. So um, there's a couple of entrepreneurs in Madrid who own Italian restaurants who are doing these uh, dinners. Nice. Yeah. Because I should say as well, it is it's an Italian TV series on Rai. And it's also then it was uh, uh, shown on BBC Four. And I think it's been I mean, the books are translated into dozens of languages huge um, bestsellers and I'm sure there must be a film version in the works at some point or whatever there always is um, and yeah so obviously in Madrid there's loads of tours of, of Sicily where you can go all, go to all of the the places in in inverted commas the book even though none of them are quite where they are but you know a bit like you can see 
Game of Thrones and Northern Ireland or whatever. <laughs> um, if you go yeah. to Sicily, you're going to have to do that. I will. I will. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. They give you sort of an insight, I think, into like the, the food aspects give you an insight in, into the character, but into quite a lot of other things as well. They're a really, really sort of integral part of the part of the books, the series like that. Yes, but because I'm reading Montalbano, I'm just, like I said, I'm craving clams all the time. <laughs> so this is like, you know, just to just, just be warned. It's funny as well, like, because mm-hmm. earlier on you were kind of, I think you were saying, you know, like you, you read it and then you want to make it or whatever. I think that's probably not the case for a lot of people in that it's just this sort of atmosphere that washes over you that the words use a lot of the time you'd have no idea what the food is even a lot of Italians wouldn't have any idea what the food is because they're very specific to Sicily and and the books are also written in this kind of Sicilian Italian type of hybrid like they're they're written in Italian but the characters speak in in sort of Sicilian dialect in a way that makes them still accessible to all Italian speakers but they tend to to immediately revert to Sicilian when they talk about food and, th- and things like that. And, and the- But Connor, like, you know, if you have, you know, someone going, if you have, you know, if you have Montalbana eating a pasta naschietta, which I've never heard of it, and which he describes as a dish worthy of Olympus, do you not <laughs> want to know what that pasta naschietta is? Well, I do, like, but do then by the time you get to the end of the like, book, there's been like 15 <laughs> meals and they've all been described as the most beautiful incarnations in the history of cooking. And it's all so superlative. I think it kind of uh, gets a little bit dulled after a but while. But there's no, yeah, the, but there's no descriptors, right? And so yeah. that for me is also the mystery of Montalbano, right? Because it's kind of like you get a dish and you, a lot of times with, I'd say, food adjacent books. They'll be like the pasta which you know would be this aubergine, you know, dome with you know filled with like you know this penne, blah blah blah, dish worthy of Olympus. I like <laughs> pasta dish worthy of Olympus. I was like, okay, I got to bookmark that and look it up later. May like describing things in a lot of detail because she's <laughs> a very good writer. So she doesn't need <laughs> photos. You don't need <laughs> photos when May writes. It's like very descriptive. Just to interrupt the show very quickly, before we go any further, we should mention, of course, that both our shows are part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. And if you'd like to support our shows, you can sign up to become a member of Headstuff Plus. So for just five euro a month, you will get behind the scenes access and lots and lots of bonus content, not only from Spice Bags and WTTE, but also for all the shows on the network. So for all the details, go to headstuffpodcasts.com. So that's headstuffpodcasts.com. And while we're on the topic of Headstuff Podcast Network shows, have a listen to a trailer from Fireside, another great show on the network. So this is a show hosted by Kevin C. Olihan, and it's an Irish storytelling podcast. It's really, really good. I would highly recommend it. So Kevin retells tales of folklore and myths as they were meant to be told. And he tells a story and then also talks about the craft, the culture and the history of storytelling. So have a listen. Once upon a time. 
Fireside is the Irish storytelling podcast. Every week we breathe new life into old stories from folklore and mythology, from the mysterious landing of the old Celtic gods to the epic wars fought by Cúchulainn and Queen Maeve, right down to the petty squabbles between headstrong mortals and roguish fairies. We already have a huge collection available with a new episode every Wednesday. This is not just a podcast for folklore fiends, but for anyone who enjoys a good story. And who doesn't love a good story? My name is Kevin C. Olahan, and I am your host and your fireside bard. Wherever you are in the world, you can always join me by the fireside. Camilleri gets the name for his character Montalbano from Montalban, which is someone you were going to tell us about, Blanca. Camilleri was influenced by the Spanish writer Vázquez Montalbán, who created in the 70s this character, Carvalho, Pepe Carvalho, who is also a detective like Montalbano, but a very dark uh, ex-CIA agent from Galicia that lives in Barcelona. And he's a very iconic um, detective in Spain. And obviously these novels have been translated into many languages. This is a very successful writer, but also he was a gastronomic writer and a communist and an essayist and a poet. But um, he wrote a lot of books about Carvalho's gastronomic pursuits. So there's like 10 volumes and I have those books, but I've never read the detective stories. So, but I know a lot about Carvalho and what he ate and what he didn't eat and his like romances. And the most interesting thing about this writer who is, you know, in Spain, if you want to be a poster, you need to know about this writer, Vázquez Montalban. It's like, if you don't, you're like a total loser. So he, he's, he, even though he was a communist um, and he was into traditional food, he loved uh, El Bulli and he loved innovation in gastronomy. So when he died, he had his ashes scattered in Calamonjoy, where El Bulli was. And, you know, it, it, was, it was just such a... You know, this man who wrote all these novels, who was a communist, who was in jail during the Franco years, whatever, his final, you know, wish was to be dusted all over El Bulli. Anyway, that's so Camilleri named Montalbano in honor of Vázquez Montalban's book, um, The Pianist. But anyway, after reading, after hearing you talk about Montalbano, I'm thinking, you know, I need to go back and also read Pepe Carvalho and maybe understand more about the character but to me it was just about the food and he's he's like encyclopedias gastronomic encyclopedias main course Haruki Murakami is uh the most popular Japanese author outside of Japan um he's not really I mean, he's liked in his own country, but he's definitely like much more outside of his country. Um, but speaking of a, like a food thing, um, his Japanese critics call him bakakuzai, which means um, stinking of butter, which implies that he is too Western. But I like the whole butter thing because I was like thinking of Mirakami and food and I was like, oh, this is an interesting fact about him. I think that Murakami is an interesting segue from Montalbano because a lot of his characters are these sort of lone gumshoe types. Um, And what orients them like Montalbano is a love of books, a love of music, 
and a very specific love of food. Um, and so what Murakami does, he is, I suppose he's magic realism, but then he's also rooted in that detective genre. And I think the other person I might compare Haruki Murakami to is the director, David Lynch. I don't know if you guys are David Lynch fans. Oh, yeah. Okay, see, I'm not a huge David Lynch fan, but um, someone else had made that comparison because in order to love Murakami or to love Lynch, you have to buy into their dreamscapes, right? You actually have to somehow think that what they are creating is real for them. Like if you don't do that, then what they've created for you can come off as pretentious. So Connor, you asked me why Murakami was one of my favorite food authors. Hmm. Um, and I also I, I tried to do a Murakami recipe book for when my brother got married. And I stopped at one book because there were 60 dishes. <laughs> and uh, and so just for example, in the novel Hard Boiled Wonderland, we're talking one meal, 11 items. And I'm not going to go all into it, but it's like um, there's sardines and abura age tofu with grated yaman uh, with wild yam and taro butter, sauteed beef and celery, green beans with tofu and sesame dressing, flash fried agedoshi tofu, like hot dogs, chocolate cake. And that's just the beginning of it. And that is one meal. And so I think, so how does, I was trying to think like, how does Murakami's food works? I think it, A, like Montalbano, I think it helps make the guy a decent person. But also when we're talking about Montalbano, right, you're saying um, that the food in Montalbano also creates, like that makes um, that Sicily, even though it's an invented, like an invented Sicilian town, right? That, it, it makes it concrete. Um, and actually, weirdly, right, I think food in Murakami does the same thing. And it makes his world concrete, which is part Japan, part West, and part, like, crazy dreamscape. Um, and so, um, and also, I, and this is actually, we were talking about Alice in Wonderland. I think that food for him functions as a rabbit hole. You know, you're either, you either often eat and then you go into another world. Or you go into another world and then you eat something, which I think is very much Alice. You know, it cements you with that world. Like Alice falls down the rabbit hole. She eats a cake that says eat me. And then that makes her fate with that world inexorably entwined. And so um, I just wanted to quote really quickly. Um, so and also I want to say actually it was hard to find great Murakami quotes because he's not a great stylist. He's not a beautiful writer. Uh, he's really accessible. I um, mean, he gets you where he wants to go. But his book, which I think kind of catapulted him to stardom, was uh, The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle. Um, so, and I love this opening scene. He says, when the phone rang, I was in the kitchen, boiling a pot full of spaghetti and whistling along with an FM broadcast of the overture of to Rossini's The Thieving Magpie, which has to be the perfect music for cooking pasta. And, you know, the rabbit hole is going to open. Um, and the reason I think also why the Wind Up Bird Chronicle was so successful, I mean, he was already a success, but why it kind of cat catapulted him into superstardom was because he was playing around with these, you know, the real, the fantastic. But he also, the Wind Up Bird involves uh, the re very real trauma of World War II and the Mongolians and the Russians and the Japanese on 
like in the Manchurian front. And so, and this is again, a food quote. Um, and it's one of the most jarring. So the Japanese soldiers are being tortured by a Russian with the Mongolian soldier to them. And he's referring to the Mongolian says the Russian, an excellent slaughter is like an excellent meal. The longer they take with their preparations, the more enjoyment they derive from the act. I want you to look at this knife closely. It is a very special knife designed for skinning and is extraordinarily well made. They can take a man's skin off the way you'd peel a peach. So I don't want to. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And so, so he uses like food in, you know, different ways. <laughs> well, that goes back to what you were saying, Dee, about food and horror and d- yeah. food descriptors and comparisons for very horrific things. I actually realized as well that food and horror is almost as um, some ways can be used in the same, like it's, it's as detrimental to a character um, as having sex in horror, you know, it's like, you know, can sometimes Mm. be the end. It can symbolize the end. Like there's a lot of characters who, you know, you'll see them, especially with meat, right? Especially, I don't know if it's like, sometimes, I know it sounds funny, like vegetarians are safe, but <laughs> if you're eating a piece of meat in horror, you're screwed. <laughs> especially if you're blonde eating a piece of meat. Oh, I mean, and you've just had sex. Yeah, mm. I mean, yeah. So um, it's, it is that thing of, I suppose, yeah, in horror that if you're, there's a lot of famous scenes and things that are people have just, you know, sat down to a meal or they've, um, they're eating something. They've gone downstairs for a midnight snack, you know, in the fridge or something. And, you know, um, something happens to them, they hallucinate or they see, or something horrific is, is visited upon them. And I suppose my relationship with horror didn't start with literature, but started with movies when I was growing up. And then going on to read a lot of the books of my favorite um, horror films. So things like Poltergeist and, um, you know, that has so many amazing food scenes in it. But, but then going on to read a lot of Stephen King and Neil Gaiman and, you know, where their worlds are just so um, and their books are just so elaborate. And, and how then food is it becomes different Uh, It's used in different ways in terms of it's not only used to signify something's about to happen, but also in some books, you know, you become the food as well, you know, in horror as well, like the victims become food as well or or something to that effect. Um, So I think it's just food in horror is actually probably the most intertwined out of a lot of genres um, because it's used so much. I was just going to say, I think Stephen King uses it slightly differently, though, than other horror, right? And um, and and maybe Murakami uses this a little bit as well. And um, and I'm going to later talk about Shirley Jackson. Mm-hmm. But Stephen King, I think, uses food in the very ordinariness of food. Like it's like you know, so so his whole thing about the getting you really scared is that he sets up, you know, you can be in a diner. And you can be, you know, he's describing the eggs or you can be, you know, eating at a restaurant and he's just, or you, you can be in the kitchen making cornflakes and he describes the ordinariness of that. Yes. Right. And that's what makes him horrific because he juxtaposes the ordinariness of eating with the horror that is about to come. Am I wrong? I do, I, I do have a good Stephen King example, actually, but, um, 
if you're if you're it's from um it's from it people might be familiar with it from it was made into a, a 90s tv series um and then most recently has been remade as a movie again um but basically this is the part where um it's about a uh, the, these children who are terrorized by it, um, a supernatural being who terrorized them when they're younger and then basically revisits them when they're older. And because the murders have started again, the same group of, of kids, now adults, have basically, they've reunited um, to face it once more as adults. And they they have their reunion in a Chinese restaurant. And basically they've they've hired a private room in the back. And they're after having their meal and they've they've basically decided they're going to do something about it, but they're they're all still everything's quite normal at the moment. And as you said, May, it's quite rooted in a very normal meal and and get together. They're all being very polite. And Rose, the waitress or hostess, has brought them out a plate of fortune cookies. And so this is where I'm going to I'm going to read. They laughed and Mike passed the little bowl of fortune cookies to Richie, who took one and then sent it around the table. Bill noticed that no one opened his or her cookie until each had one. They sat with the little hat-shaped cookies either in front of them or held in their hands. And even as Beverly, still smiling, picked hers up, Bill felt a cry rising in his throat. No, no, don't do that. It's part of it. Put it back. Don't open it. But it was too late. Beverly had broken hers open. Ben was doing the same to his. Eddie was cutting into his with the edge of his fork. And just before Beverly's smile turned into a grimace of horror, Bill had time to think. We knew. Somehow we knew. Because no one simply bit into his or her fortune cookie that would have been the normal thing to do, but no one did it. Somehow, some part of us still remembers everything. And he found that under knowledge, somehow, the most horrifying realization of all, it spoke more eloquently than Mike could have about how surely and deeply it had touched each one of them and how its touch was still upon them. Blood spurted up from Beverly's fortune cookie as if from a slashed artery. It splashed across her hand and then gouted onto the white napery which covered the table, staining it in a bright red that sank in and then spread out in grasping pink fingers. Eddie uttered a strangled cry and pushed himself away from the table with such a sudden revolted confusion of arms and legs that his chair nearly tipped over. The huge bug, its chitinous carapace and ugly yellow-brown was pushing its way out of his fortune cookie as if from a cocoon. Its obsidian eyes stared blindly forward as it lurched onto Eddie's bread and butter plate. Cookie crumbs fell from its back in a little shower that Bill heard clearly and which came back to haunt his dreams when he slept for a while later that afternoon. As it freed itself entirely, it rubbed its thin rear legs together, producing a deep, reedy hum. And Bill realized it was some sort of terribly mutated cricket. It lumbered to the edge of the dish and tumbled onto the tablecloth on its back. <laughs> <Whew>. <laughs> I'm out of breath. 
But um, yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> it's absolutely terrifying. I think I, I've watched a huge catalogue of horror films over the years, but I've never been as terrified as reading horror. Food has always found its place in it. And King just has this way, I think you're right, May, he does have a way of just turning the kind of normal into something CD and just completely abnormal and horrific. I have to say, I hate horror, D, like, <laughs> absolutely. But I did read Thinner because my best friend loves horror. And Thinner was the most disturbing book. It it's just so disturbing. Out. And and you think, how can people make up stories like that? But it really scared me. I wish now that I could get something like to do that to me. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, D, you know what? I kind of want, I can I eat a piece of cherry pie? <laughs> yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, Zissing a Thinner is about this um, lawyer uh, who basically, could long story short, gets cursed by a gypsy. And um, the cur- he just touches his face as he's even court and says thinner. And he starts to lose loads of weight. And at first he thinks he has disease or something. And then um, he realizes anyway that he has this horrible curse. And the only way to get rid of the curse is to feed somebody else a piece of this pie who he eventually feeds to his his wife, who's cheated on him, who when he goes down, but then he leaves it out for his wife to eat, to kind of like as a kind of cruel justice to her. And then he comes downstairs having, literally like putting on weight as he goes downstairs, he feels a lot better. But then he realizes his daughter is eating some of it. But then at the same time, the doorbell rings and the guy who was coming over to cheat with his wife is there. So he feeds the pie to him. It's just absolutely <laughs> bonkers. He's going around just, there's a movie of it. He's just going around trying to feed this pie to everybody. Because <laughs> mm, um, like food is, you know, if you want to engineer revulsion, you know, it's, it's like food is a easy way to do that because we have such strong opinions about food and we have such strong ideas. And, you know, even things like, you know, insects and stuff like that being revolting and disgusting to some people but then to others and in other cultures you know that's not particularly weird eating eating a cricket for example is or having a cricket on your plate isn't weird (laughs) or unusual it's just normal um and then you know whereas for others then it's it's just this this like the insects are disgusting whatever you know these these really kind of primal emotions that are such a part of horror in particular or to signal that something's about to go down you know, mm, yeah, yeah, like he yeah. put like, you know, Don't like something like, yes, <laughs> or he slowly placed the knife on, knife on his plate, you know, this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, do I have time to talk a little bit about one of Stephen King's big heroes? Go on, why don't you yeah. get her in there? He's studying really hard for this exam. Mm. <laughs> I was like, why did I do Murakami before Shirley Jackson? I know. Shirley Jackson gets, just mm. gets booted aside because yeah. Shirley Jackson, Shirley Jackson, her dates are 1916 to 1965. Um, and uh, she is an American writer. Um, and why is she a hero of Stephen King's? He thinks that she is probably one of, she is probably the best craftsman. And he says it over again. Um, he thinks that she is the most taught stylist. I mean, she's very revered among a, a lot of writers. Yeah, she's kind of that M.R. James Lovecraft in that, you know, that she is a brilliant writer and yet also spooky. Mm. 
Um, one of the other reasons why I love Shirley Jackson is Shirley Jackson's particularly, I think, relevant to the pandemic right now because all of Shirley Jackson's, most of Shirley Jackson's really spooky books happen in one house where it is a group of people being isolated, but not like in a hot, like not, but over a period of time. And um, I think one of the tips that Stephen King takes from Shirley Jackson, it's what builds the dread is the everyday housekeeping and the everyday meals. And so I just wanted to read you um, a segment from one of my favorite Shirley Jackson books, um, which is called We Have Always Lived in the Castle. And it's about two sisters, one of them who has poisoned the rest of the family. Um, the neighbors ostracize them because they are both rich and, you know, damaged. Um, so every time they try to go into the village, they have things thrown at them. So it's this thing of like rural life as well. But um, so um, the first quote is, we eat the year away. We eat the spring and the summer and the fall. We wait for something to grow and then we eat it. Um, and then on the when describing what happens when the fam when when one of the sisters poisons the family, that they eat spring lamb roasted with a mint jelly made from Constance Garden mint, spring potatoes, new peas, a salad again from Constance Garden, and then the family dies from arsenic in the blackberries. But it's like Simon Hopkinson. Like if you didn't know that this is you know this crazy book about two you know, bonkers sisters and there's arsenic in the blackberries. It could be a Simon Hopkinson, right? Like it's like this, you know, and, and there's so much love and dedication to what she has as the details. And finally, I suppose this, and this is again, the same, but um, is my one of what I think is the essence of Shirley Jackson is she says all the Blackwood women had taken the food that had come from the ground and preserved it and the deeply colored rows of jellies and pickles and bottled vegetables and fruit, maroon and amber and dark rich green, stood side by side in our cellar and would stand there forever, a poem by the Blackwood women. Each year, Constance and Uncle Julian and I had jam or preserves or pickle that Constance had made, but we never touched what belonged to the others. Constance said it would kill us if we ate it. Um, and I think she's probably best, Shirley Jackson is probably best known for um, her book, The Haunting of Hill House. Terrifying. Oh my God. Yeah. Which, yeah, right? Like, uh, you know, made into two movies, but read the book, please. Um, but also read her two books about child raising because um, it's called, they're, they're called Life Among the Savages and Raising Demons. <laughs> but you can tell by the titles that there is a kind of a sting to the tale, right? Like they are, you know, ostensibly she wrote them for good housekeeping. Ostensibly there's like, it's this merry account of her and her husband picking up from New York City, moving to Vermont with, you know, they eventually have four kids and they have cats and they have dogs. But you know, the backstory, of course, is that um, Shirley Jackson marries, um, her husband is Jewish. They're best friends with Ralph Ellison, who is the famous black writer. Um, and so, and when Stanley, who is cheating on her all the time, goes to teach with Bennington College, like, they are, again, they are both respected and yet shunned by these, like, lovely Vermont neighbors. And so her account is both laced with humor and so much venom. And like, when you read it, you go, oh, this is where Shirley Jackson makes sense. This is how she gets as sort of almost like as perfectly horrible as she does. 
but it's kind of, it is, it's like that, it's that marriage of housekeeping, horror, humor. <laughs> good, a good trio. <laughs> <laughs> Which I feel like Stephen yeah. King does. Also, yeah, totally. And I feel like as well that, um, that Netflix interpretation of haunted, uh, the haunting of Hill House was actually really, really good. I thought, yeah, because I feel like they actually at least read the book. Like they were, yes. it was a careful reading of the book and they were like, all right, what do we do? And it was and, terrifying. Yeah. yeah, it was really good. But um, yeah, I find her, I find her excellent. But um, I'm just realizing now that pretty much every book we've talked about has is connected with crime, murder or violence. Oh, yeah. Well, you could, you could, I mean, there's food and romance novels as well, obviously, mm. and things, you know, on a lighter note, <laughs> but, yeah. um, but I guess maybe that says more about us than it does about, um, so. <laughs> the darker <laughs> side dark of Spice Bags. <laughs> yeah, we went, we went a bit dark, all right. Dessert. I, I did want to mention like science fiction and food as well, just because it's something I read a lot of or watch a lot of or whatever. Um, actually, as you as you were talking about Alice in Wonderland, um, I was also thinking about The Matrix, which is another yes. you know Alice in Wonderland sort of um, base basis. And you know that w- when they're in The Matrix, it's you know like where we are, we're all in The Matrix or whatever. You can eat any type of food you want. But then when they're on their ship in the in the real world they just eat this sort of gruelly kind of rubbish Oliver food. Twist style yeah yeah and then like <laughs> when the the guy um Cypher I think it is when he betrays the crew he betrays them because he wants to go back to the Matrix and just be oblivious and you know the, the scene is he wants to go and have like a steak and a wine a glass of good wine and it's like it's the food that sort of lures him back even though he knows it's not real he doesn't want to know the food isn't real he just wants to go back to where he could taste good food and you know that's what sort of uh, ends up and he betraying. names a famous New York uh, restaurant doesn't he may he names like it's Delmonico's or Del mm. something is it Delmonico's yeah okay. Delmonico's yeah I think so okay. yeah he's very specifically yeah <laughs> wait, like the description of it and everyone you can see almost everyone who's like out of the matrix is almost like salivating at his description you know they're like (laughs) yeah i wouldn't mind going back for that yeah you know (laughs) but it's not real (laughs) yeah yeah so it's like betray humanity for a really good steak and a glass of wine you know Um, but because i I, you know i was kind of thinking that maybe unlike horror food is is often quite absent from science fiction it's either absent yeah. as a sort of an oversight or the author just isn't particularly interested or it's like absent by design you know in that a lot of science fiction stories and films and so on you know food is is made more or less redundant it's either reduced to like a pill or a protein bar or it's something where Food is incredibly utilitarian, partly, I guess, to do with sort of space science fiction, you know, where it's connected with yeah. astronauts' foods and, and various things like that. But even on other, other in other types of science fiction, nothing to do with, with space or traveling to other planets or anything like that. Um, I mean, there's, there's obviously lots of science fiction with, with food that that is a, a part of it or, or whatever else. Or, you know, science fiction, things like Soylent Green, where... Turns out, yeah. you know, the food is people and, and there's plenty of cannibalistic type of thing. I was thinking as well about stuff like post-apocalyptic novel, again, you know, connecting with horror and violence, um, post-apocalyptic novels and things like that where, you know, you have these undertones or overtones of, of cannibalism and, and other things like that. Um, but even just 
food scarcity and food resources. You know, there's a lot of um, climate change novels and, and science fiction novels set in, in future versions of, of, uh, of our world where, you know, because of, of water scarcity or because of different aspects of climate change, you know, food is, is really central, but in a mm. really dangerous way. You know, it, if it, a certain amount of food can't be produced, the population is going yeah. to die or the society is going to die or whatever. I think Margaret Atwood really deals with that in Handmaid's Tale, like, you know, mm. in terms of how the climate is destroying the planet and how food becomes such an asset, um, an asset in Gilead, you know, and how they're they're left with just kind of basic ingredients and um, even growing food and things like that becomes such a struggle. And I'm going to I'm going to sound so I'm going to sound so shallow, but like something like hunger, like, yeah. There is also, there's an aspect, right, I think with certain sci-fi in, in where people are Robinson Crusoeing it, right? Like, like a, you know, like I think like with some YA zombie stuff that I've read, but, you know, definitely Hunger Games, right? It's that, what do we do? Like we have, you know, what do you do when you shoot a squirrel and you can make a fire and then you can yeah. find these spices? And so there's actually, like, there's, there's, I think, a certain genre, which is kind of, yeah, like Robinson Crusoe's Swiss Family Robinson. Like, how do you, how do you make do? Like, and there's almost a sense of adventure about creating a meal, even though you think you're probably going to die. Digestivo. I feel like I can't end the, this episode, though, Connor, without bringing up Hannibal Lecter. I feel like I, I'd be doing the horror literature world an injustice without bringing up one of our favorite characters who is synonymous with uh, food, <laughs> shall we say, and horror. Um, the famous cannibal put into literature uh, by Thomas Harris in his books. And I suppose people will probably have seen maybe Silence of the Lambs more than maybe read the books. But um, there is a famous quote from Silence of the Lambs from Hannibal Lecter, which is uh, has been actually, it's, it's actually changed for the film. So I just thought it might be nice to finish on it. And the explanation of it, just because it's quite funny. So Hannibal Lecter, when he is, he's imprisoned and he's asked about, um, he's been quizzed by Clarice and he says, I'm not going to do this justice because like, all I can picture <laughs> voice, is just Anthony, Anthony, <laughs> Anthony Hopkins in my head, but I'm just going to read it normally. Um, a census taker tried to quantify me once. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a big amarone. Go back to school, starling, little starling. So that's the quote. Which, Chianti. and I did yes, and I didn't do the, you know, <laughs> the, the fava beans as Hopkins made it famous. But um, yeah. So basically, they changed it to Chianti in the film, which was basically because the film producers thought that Chianti was a more recognisable red wine than amarone. They felt it it wouldn't it just wouldn't capture people's attention, but but actually when you when you look at the book, the reason they used amarone was because the word amaro means bitter. Also, kind of ties into kind of eating people, I suppose, or drinking, <laughs> um, or that Hannibal Lecter was a bitter one, bitter person. Um, but also, it's um, more alcoholic red wine. The the alcoholic content content in it would be a lot higher, so it actually would work 
like in, tar- in terms of food and wine pairing, that wine would actually pair better with the liver than Chianti. But yes, but the joke, the in-joke is that his, the reason he says this is a kind of a, a medical joke, because obviously he was Dr. Hannibal Lecter. And they reckon that he would have been, he was in the um, asylum, the mental hospital at this point, and he was being treated there. And they think, I just have to look this up, he would have been on a set of drugs called monoamine oxidase inhibitors, or MAOIs, which would have, may have been used to treat him. And the three things you're not allowed to eat or take while you're on those are liver, beans, and wine. They're the three things that you need to avoid when you're on those. So they think that actually Thomas Harris had written that into the book as a kind of a medical joke. So wow, that's just real nerd, lot, nerdy bit of knowledge quote. there. Yeah, wow. And this is <laughs> our Digestivo here. part of the evening. And Amaris, have what you have. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And now we're all going to drink a glass of Amarone. <laughs> hmm. That sounds like an excellent idea. So guys, hope you enjoyed that episode um, with Words That Effect and Connor. Um, Connor, can you let us know where you can find out more about your uh, your podcast? Yeah, sure. So you can go to the Headstuff website, which is headstuffpodcast.com and listen to all the back catalogue of episodes. Um, you can follow the show on Facebook and Instagram at Words to That Effect. And I'm on Twitter at CEDread. Um, and there is also a Words That Effect website, wttepodcast.com, with loads of other stuff. But go to any of them and they're all linked together. You'll, you'll find me. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.